Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Okay, so if last week we explored Paul's main themes in the book of Ephesians, and I, just inter- I was just introducing us to the book, this week I want to take us deeper into the first chapter. And to set the stage for what Paul's going to introduce us to in this chapter, I want to begin with a parable, all right? So there's this parable about two fish swimming in a stream and they cross paths with an older fish. The older fish looks at them and nods and says, how's the water? And the two fish swim a little further on and one of them turns to the other and it says, what the heck is water? I love this parable because you could just imagine the the absurdity of fish swimming in water, wondering what water is. The idea that we're not always aware of realities that we are immersed in. And Paul is like this older fish that is trying to get our attention and to get us to become aware of an already present reality that we are swimming in every second and every moment of our life. He's going to talk to us about this really profound idea called union with Christ. And he begins to unfold this in the very first chapter. In fact, the whole book of Ephesians is sprinkled and innervated with this idea. It's the most densely packed book with this concept of being in Christ more than any other book in the new Testament. Now in chapter, in chapter one, verses three to 14 in just 11 verses, Paul uses this phrase 11 times, just saturating the entire first chapter with this idea, this notion of being in Christ. In fact, the whole book is organized around this idea as its central theme. So the first three chapters, Paul's unpacking for us what it means that we're in Christ. And then in chapters four through six, he begins to unpack what it means for us to live out this significant identity in the way that we interact with each other and the way we engage with the world. So the first three chapters are about our identity in Christ. And the last three chapters are about our calling to live out this identity. It's in chapter three, verse 16, that Paul pivots. It's the hinge point or the white hot core, the heartbeat of this letter. And he says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's after this, that Paul then begins to move on and talk about how we're to live our life. And so for the first three chapters, and especially in this first chapter, he's unpacking this idea of what it means for us to be united with Jesus. He doesn't want to just rush right into how we're supposed to live our life. He wants us to pause and just reflect on this profound truth that defines our very nature. Listen to this quote by one of my favorite authors on the subject in his book, Union with Christ. Rankin writes, Union with Christ touches on the highest and most profound truths of the gospel. And at the same time, reaches down into the depths of the human heart to fill us with more joy and hope, more comfort and strength, than anything else ever could. Have you ever thought about the reality of being united with Christ as the most profound truth of the gospel? According to Paul, it is the reason why Jesus died and rose from the dead. As good as that truth is, 
That was the means to this end for us to be reunited in intimate union with Jesus. And so this is where Paul picks up in chapter one, verse three, this idea of being united with Christ. Listen to how he puts it. All praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. In the NIV, it is because we are in Christ. This is the New Living Translation. I love the way it captures what Paul means by in Christ. You can read all the way through the NIV and see this in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But it's easy to overlook it, to just read right past it and not really stop and think, what does he really mean by this? And so the New Living brings it out and it articulates what Paul means. He's talking about the implications of us being united with Jesus, not just in theory, but what it means to be united with Jesus spiritually and supernaturally at the level of our spirits and our soul. This is a profound truth that Paul wants to uncover and he wants us to take time to meditate on this. And so this is where we get the focus of today's message. I want to talk about what it means for you to be united with Christ and what blessings does Paul want to awaken to us? Because he uses the idea of being blessed by God to frame what it really means for us to be united with Jesus. And so he's going to walk us through three key blessings that I want to share with you. The first blessing that we get when we're united with Jesus is that we are reunited with God's original love. And I want to unpack this idea of original love. In verse four, he says this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. Now just stop and think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God loved you before you were ever created, before you ever existed God loved you. He places this love of God for you before time. And he places it into eternity before the world was created, before all the galaxies, before the fabric of time and space was woven, before light itself was spoken into existence, before you did or said anything, before you, before original sin, God loved you. I mean, just think about how incomprehensible that is. That before you existed, God was thinking of you. And his heart was overflowing with love for you. This is like a profound reality and truth. Your identity is grounded first and foremost in God's love for you. This means God's love is the reason you exist. It was God's love that inspired and pressed him and led him to create you. Your identity is grounded in God's love for you. It is the ground of your being, meaning it is the deepest truth about who you are. How does that sit with you? How does it sit with you that the most fundamental core truth about you is that you are loved. This is what I think first John means when it says we love because he first loved us. 
Everything in us originates from this core truth. God's love for you is the source for everything good in your life. Everything in your very existence is flowing out of this fountainhead. First John 4.10 goes on to say, this is love. Now this is love. He's defining love for us, right? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. The basis of your response to God is his already pre-existing love for you. That is just, I don't know. I think that's just incredible. And if you just think on that and let it settle, it's an overwhelming thought. Just take time today and just think about that. That God loved you before you even existed. This idea of our identity being rooted in God's love is a really profound idea. When another author, David Benner, in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, talks about this. And this is the way he puts it. He says that whether we realize it or not, our being, our being is grounded in God's love. This generative love of God was our origin, the embracing love of God that sustains our very existence. The inextinguishable love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and our calling for we are children of love. I just think this is so deep. You see that love is your identity and it is your calling. It is the reason why you exist. Think about this. Everything you do in life, the significance of everything you do boils down to this, the quality of love that is put into it. I remember watching this video documentary on Mother Teresa. It just showed her washing a bedpost one by one in this hospital in which she worked, where she took care of dying leprous victims. And she says, it's not the size of the task that you do. That is not what matters or gives it significance. She says, it's the amount of love you put into it. And there she is just washing a bedpost saying, it's not this big thing that you do in life that's going to fill you and fulfill you and make it significant. It's going to be the amount of love you put in to the ordinary daily things of life that you do. That is just such a reorienting perspective on what really matters in life. How would that affect the way you pursue your career or the way that you parent or how you spend your time? that the only thing that's going to matter at the end of your life was how well you loved. As Paul puts it, faith expressing itself through love. Paul wants to expand on this idea of original love in verse five. Listen, he says, in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Meaning God was not doing it reluctantly. He was so excited to adopt you and bring you into his family to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. God's original love is completely and totally based on God's choice, his joy and his power. Now this is where we encounter a really challenging thought, the idea of predestination. And there's a lot of mystery wrapped up in this idea. And so I want to unpack how Paul uses the idea of predestination, because this is an idea 
that can really throw a lot of us off course from how the scripture really intends for it to be used. Predestination is the way that Paul describes God's unwavering determination to love you no matter what is going on in your life that we might think could prevent God from loving us at full throttle. He is determined to not allow anything in your life to come between you and his love for you. That is predestination because it locates his love, not in your behavior, not in how good of a person you are, not in how many times you've gone to church or how many times you've read the Bible this week or how much you tithe or how many times you didn't lose your temper with your kids this week or how on time you were to your last meeting. God's love is completely located in his choice before you ever existed to love you through everything, no matter what. Can you imagine being loved like that? And have you ever experienced that? Have you ever gotten a taste of someone just loving you like that? This idea of original love. I, I, I got a glimpse of this idea of original love, but in contrast, in, in this sort of contrast moment. When my wife and I first got pregnant, it was the most thrilling experience, right? It was just like mind blowing. Oh my gosh, we're about to bring a new life into the world. And within a month or so into our first pregnancy, my wife had her miscarriage. I was absolutely stunned and surprised and shocked at how painful it was. I couldn't believe how attached and how in love I had already become to this unformed person, this person I had never met yet was already connected to. And I know maybe if you've never been through a miscarriage, you think, oh, you were Ryan, you were grieving the loss of an idea, the idea of having a kid. But if you've been through a miscarriage, you know, that's not what it was. In some mysterious, inexplicable way, I had already begun to fall in love with this person that I'd never met. And I think that just gives us a glimpse of original love and that every human being is born out of that original love, the divine love of God that predates our birth and our existence on earth. And I think as parents were touched with a glimpse of that kind of love for our kids to show the world, this is what, how God loves us. And God loves you with that kind of love a love that cannot be threatened by any sin in your life. There is no hidden fault, no failing or weakness in thought, word or deed that can ever diminish God's love for you, which is why Paul calls this glorious grace. And this is the meaning behind grace. God's decision to love you completely independent of anything you could ever do to earn it so that nothing you ever did could ever threaten his love for you. But this brings us to this idea of sin. And I want to talk to you about sin for a second because theology makes a lot of the idea of original sin. And this brings us to the second blessing, the blessing of redemption. If the first is the blessing of original love, the second is the blessing of redemption, which is freedom from original sin. Redemption 
means freedom from original sin. In verse seven, Paul says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. When we are united with Jesus, we are set free from what theologians call original sin. Original sin refers to the universal fundamental defect that is in every single person, not in them biologically, not just in them morally, but in the very fabric of the their nature. And that fundamental defect is reflected in and echoed in every part of us. And so we see people who are born imperfect, spiritually, physically, emotionally, circumstantially. And that is because fundamentally there is a defect in human nature. And that is the reason behind evil and selfishness and violence and everything that goes wrong in the world. This fundamental defect doesn't only affect us in our, in human nature, but affects the very fabric of all creation. And it was caused by the fall so that in Genesis three, we see how sin entered the world through just two people. This is where the Bible gives us an understanding of the mystery of evil and that it doesn't go away with more education or more technology, or just trying harder in human effort. And that's why Jesus came. Original sin is human nature divorced from God's original gracious love. Original sin is human nature divorced from God's love, which leaves us forever trying to prove that we are worth loving and forever requiring, get this, others to prove to us that they are worth loving, loving. This is life based on our original sin. Original sin results in us constantly trying to prove that we're worth being loved through our careers, our performance, our looks, our achievements, our likes on Instagram. But it also enslaves us to holding others to that standard. And so we are constantly requiring others to prove to us that they are worth our love. Because the truth is your love, even your love for the people that mean the most to you, apart from Christ is based on this conditional love that requires them to constantly prove to you that they're worth your affection, worth your interest, worth your love. Think about the level of anxiety this creates for all of us in a world dominated by that kind of unconditional love that always needs to be proven, earned, deserved, and achieved. Think about what that does to human beings at the very core of their nature. This need to constantly prove ourselves. It's hard to admit it, but we do this to the people around us that we love the most. And without Jesus, this is really the best that we can do. I know that sounds pretty dismal, right? That sounds pretty negative, but it's not because the ultimate big world truth is this is not your true nature. This is not the deepest truth about who we are. And so that brings us to the blessing of being filled with the Holy Spirit because humans were created for more. And that's the, this is the crazy, I don't know if you want to call it optimism or what Paul calls like the eternal hope of the gospel, which is more than optimism. It's just, gritty hope that says there is a potential in human nature that is beyond anything that even the most audacious philosophers could ever dare dream. And it's this in verse 13, when you believe, when you believe in Jesus, 
you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, Paul says. Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The presence and activity of the Holy Spirit in our life marks us as true followers of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit filling you, coming inside of you, that seals this idea of you being united with Jesus. The Spirit of God being intertwined with your spirit is how Paul puts it. And through the Spirit, the life of God begins to pulsate and radiate and energize every part of our life, which is why we can't understand ourselves as followers of Jesus without understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, because the Holy Spirit is the applicator of everything that Jesus has earned for us on the cross and made available to us in the heavenly realms. The Holy Spirit opens the heavenly realms to us and reaches into the pantry of God's blessings and pulls them out one by one for us. Paul, according to Paul in verse 17, the spirit gives us wisdom and revelation, the ability to see everything in our life from God's perspective. He, the, the spirit gives us the ability to experience a growing intimacy with God so that when we begin to follow Jesus, we are just in the front porch of the house. We've only just begun to explore this huge interior castle of dwelling with God that we have in Christ. And lastly, in verse 19, the Holy Spirit gives us access to God's incomparable great power. A power that Paul later in chapter three prays. He, listen to this. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He doesn't say, I'm praying for power so you can levitate. I'm praying for power so you can walk on water. Although I'm sure maybe that could be possible. But Paul prays for something even more important. He prays for the power for you and I to continue at deeper and deeper levels to grasp, to realize, to become aware of the unsearchable heights and depths of God's love for us. Because the more we're awakened to God's love for us, the more we are transformed and made like Jesus. Before we get on to trying to talk about what we're called to do in Jesus, Paul wants us to sink deeper and deeper into what this means, that you are loved by a love that cannot be broken by all the sin in the world. What does this mean for you? As we go into this song, I want to just give us a moment to reflect and pause and ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to be restored to original love and to live our identity out of that place? Paul just wants to awaken us to the wonder the mystery and just the awe of what it means that we're united with Christ. There's three things we looked at today. To be united with Christ means that we are reunited with God's original love. That is the basis of our identity. It is the basis of our existence and it forms and transforms us to be like Christ. Number two, we are redeemed. The blessing of redemption, which means we are set free from the power of original sin. And thirdly, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God inside of us, giving us access to all the blessings in the spiritual realm that have been given to us. As you guys wrap up this message, I want to just give you a couple of things to reflect on yourself or to talk about with your friends or your family. A couple of things to think about. Number one, 
Why does Paul talk about us needing power to grasp the depth and the riches of God's love for us? What is it that about needing power that we need to be able to grasp this? Number two, what does it mean for your identity to be rooted in God's original love? What is that? How does that change how you see yourself? How does that change everything about our life? And lastly, how does this free you to love others right where you are, right where they're at? How does God's original love free you to love others right where they're at? God bless you and have a great week. Let me pray a blessing over you. I bless you to go out this week overflowing with fresh awareness of your father's original love for you that defines you, that anchors you, that sustains you, that energizes you. I bless you to be released, to be who you were created to be in Christ. And may God express and reveal his love in you and through you to those around you this week. God bless you. Have a good week. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.